Right then, so Genesis chapter 15 from verse 1. And it's entitled, The Lord's Covenant with Abraham. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the, Lord, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own, flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation of your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pack with with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphates, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gerishites, and the Jebusites. And this is the word of the Lord. Okay, turn through into the New Testament into the book of Galatians. Been here three weeks already, but we're moving quite quickly through. And we're in chapter 3. And I'm going to pick up at verse um, 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life, Paul says. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law 
given at all? I guess that's our key question for this morning. Why then was the, Lord give, was the law given at all? You may have been asking that along the way. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. That was Moses. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. The implication is, though, of course, that it can't. The law cannot give life. And so Paul says, so scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Well, actually, in the previous NIV, it says we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Um, no longer under a guardian is a, is a more accurate translation, but uh, the sense is the same. No longer under the supervision of the law. So in Galatians, it's about getting the gospel right. Getting the gospel right, not just in, um, in theory, but, it, but in practice. So I want you to just imagine um, you, are, uh, you set yourself, uh, uh, you know, on your next holiday to drive the whole length of the A1 um, as, you know, maybe with your little caravan on the back. Um, what prompted this was I caught five minutes of a programme about the A1 being the, the UK's longest road in the week. Anybody else see that? It was kind of a... Um, well, well, it is. There you go. Um, all 410 miles of it. Um, so imagine you're, you're setting off on your, your, your quest um, to have travelled all of the A1. Um, you're sticking religiously to the, to the speed limit. Um, you're never going above 70 miles an hour. Um, just as you're about to get into to, um, Edinburgh on the, on the last bit of dual carriageway, uh, you lose concentration and you're caught by a, a speed camera um, going at about 77 miles an hour, say. And the ticket comes through the door, um, you know, about a week later. You could plead that you were in the right 99% of the time, more than 99% of the time, I was right, okay? And when I was wrong, I was no more than 10% wrong. But that doesn't change anything. You are a speeder. The ticket has dropped through the door. Um, you have invoked uh, a punishment upon yourself. You have slipped, the law has been broken, and you are a speeder, whether you, whether you like it or not however you try and justify it. Now, that law you could keep, you know, with a bit more concentration, you say, I'll go back and do it next year and I won't go above 60. You know, that's a law you can keep. But what about this law of God, this law that says you are to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself, as summed up in the Ten Commandments, for example? Well, the point is this, we've learned as we go along, that if you slip up at any one point, you become a lawbreaker. If you slip up at any one point, you become a lawbreaker, you become a sinner. And that includes all that stuff about coveting and all that stuff about honouring your parents. 
So how can you be a friend of God? How can you become a friend of God? Well, instinct tells you, and the Bible tells you that you have to be good enough. But experience tells you, and the Bible tells you, that you can't be good enough. You don't have the power to be innocent enough. There is a break here, there is a break there. Actually, there are breaks more often than we like to even consider. And you can try and justify yourself and say, well, I kept it 99% of the time, though I think you'd be kidding yourself. You can argue that at no point in time was I more than 10% out, but it makes no difference. You are a lawbreaker. You are a sinner and you have called down punishment upon yourself. And for that reason, the law is powerless. Powerless to make you right with God. And so uh, at the end of Galatians chapter 2, or Galatians 2, chapter 16, we read this, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, um, but by faith in Christ. No one is ever justified by the law. I think there's a bit more on that slide, Sam. But this begs the question, what then is the point of the law? So much of the Old Testament is about, is about the law of Moses and about its application or, or non-application. What is the point? Well, Paul starts to answer that today. This is not the whole of the answer, but Paul starts to give it as an answer. And he does that by giving uh, a, a very uh, a simple everyday uh, illustration, which is the making of a will or, or the making of, of, of a covenant. And so we're just going to work that through as it is in the text. And, and Paul starts with this. Brothers and sisters... Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. And that, hence the story of Abraham. You see, when we make a will, when a person has died, we, we consider it sacrosanct. It, it cannot be changed. I know, yes, wills get contested these days, but in the main, we consider what somebody writes in, in their last will and testament. It's a, it's a promise uh, of a kind. Um, it is a covenant it is sacrosanct, it cannot be changed. And so God makes this kind of promise to Abraham, with Abraham. Uh, it's called a covenant, but the word in the original is the same uh, as would have been used for, for a will. So when we read covenant, you, you can think will. They're both the same kind of promise, because they're both kind of similarly binding. And it's there in Genesis 15. What, what has God promised Abraham? That's not the first time God's come to him. He's come back in uh, chapter 12 of Genesis and he's promised him uh, uh, that he'll become a nation. Um, and that implies then, of course, that he's going to have some children somewhere along the way. And, and again, God takes Abraham outside and he says, look at the stars. And he says, look at that. He says, that's, that's how many children you're going to have. And then we get one of the most astonishing statements in the Bible. Uh, Abraham believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. It's an astonishing statement, don't you think? He, he believed God, and God said, on the, on the basis of you trusting me, I'm going to call you uh, righteous. But even so, as you read in that reading, I don't know whether you noticed, Abraham still wants a sign. He says, well, yeah, Lord, that's all very good. I can see the stars. That's how many children. But um, yeah, hang on a minute. There needs to be at least one um, to get me started. And at the moment, all my stuff's going to go to Eliezer of Damascus. Um, so can we please have a sign? And, and God says, well, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram in the prime of life, and a dove and a pigeon. He doesn't tell him what to do. Abraham knows what to do. 
um, he cuts them in half. And he lays them out on, on the ground. I did look for a picture uh, online, and there are some very obscure pictures, but there weren't any really good ones, and, and the good ones were Rick Gorey. So I, I didn't, you, you, can you imagine it? He's kind of ripped or cut some uh, animals in half, and he's, and he's put them out on the ground. Because this is what you did if you made a pact, if you made a covenant uh, with somebody. You would walk between the, uh, the pieces, both of you, uh, and basically, so it's a blood promise. It says that if I break this, then this is what you can do to me. It, it's a pact. But instead of walking through the pieces, Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And it's that kind of sleep with a dreadful kind of darkness in Scripture quite often precedes uh, an important act of God. And out of this thick and dreadful darkness there, uh, the Lord speaks. And he says to Abraham, trust this, believe this. I know it's going to be 400 years. I'm giving the Amorites 400 years grace. But they're not going to use it. But that means 400 years you're going to suffer ill treatment. In Egypt, before I bring you, before I'll make you a big family and bring you into your homeland. And whilst it seems Abraham is still asleep, a fire that represents the personal presence of God passes, comes down, passes between the slaughtered animals. And that's an amazing thing. Because note two things. God, it's God who comes between the animals. It's God who binds himself to the promise. It's God who says, may you kind of slaughter me if I don't keep my promise. And what does Abraham have to do? Nothing, Abraham's asleep. Abraham just looks and watches and accepts and he's already trusted uh, and he's declared right, righteous. So God binds himself to, to this promise to Abraham and it basically he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will be my family, you will be my friends, I'll make you a blessing and I will give you a home. It's a lovely story. It's an amazing thing. What's it got to do to us? Well, Paul goes on to say, uh, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. It's a very interesting argument. There's we've got the seed. I don't know what kind of seed it is. Paul says that scripture doesn't say this was given to Abraham and to his seeds. Uh, if, you, if you go back and read it, uh, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, I think Genesis 24, um, the NIV translates it offspring. So we kind of lose this argument that Paul is making. Paul says, God makes this promise to Abraham and to his seed, not to his offspring in general, um, but to one uh, specific um, descendant. And that descendant um, is Christ. Somewhere ahead of you, Sam. So although... Because the promise is to make Abraham a big family, it does involve his family. Paul says the, 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 this promise is made specifically to Abraham and, and to Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? So, God makes a promise to Abraham, but actually it, it's a promise on the basis of what another member of Abraham's family is going to do. On the basis that another member of his family will fully obey and, and pay for any wrongs. So imagine yourself, take yourself back to when you were, let's say, nine or ten, 
or, or maybe 12 or 13, and you were a naughty kid. Okay, were you ever a naughty kid? No, 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 Steve, no, I, I absolutely believe you. You were never a naughty kid. Wouldn't it be fantastic if you had a sibling, you know, a brother or a sister, who would do all the right stuff, would be the goody two-shoes and do all the right stuff but let you take the credit? That would be great, wouldn't it? And, and, who would do, and who would take the fall for everything you do wrong? So every time you smashed a window, they would say, oh, it was me. That would be lovely. Well, I'll tell you what, you do. You do, right here. And now this morning, you naughty kids. Okay, if that's to trivialise sin, but you naughty people, okay, have a, have a brother who does all the right stuff and is prepared to let you take the credit. Um, and he's prepared to take the fall for everything you do wrong. Already has taken the fall for everything you do wrong. So the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. So the promise is made to Abraham, but it is made through Christ. So this promise of friendship, this promise of a place, it's made to Abraham, but it's made on the basis of what Christ has done. Even though... Obviously, Christ won't come for many hundreds of years. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, Paul, Paul says this. What I mean is this. What I mean is this, he says. The law comes 430 years later. It doesn't set aside. It doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God. Okay. And it doesn't do away with the promise. If the inheritance depends on law, it no longer depends on promise. It can't depend on both. So the Lord Moses comes 430 years later, and it's really tempting to think, well, this changes things. We've now got kind of a promise plus law. Uh, promise comes through keeping the law, and Paul says, no, it's not true. He says the law cannot set aside the will, the covenant, the, the, the promise, because the two are completely different things. So it's quite interesting, because there's an example from our household, in that my kind of, uh, my mum, bless her, um, based on some money my dad had invested in um, some policies years before, has left some money to each of the children. Um, so uh, Nathan, for when he turns 18, uh, should in theory kind of in, inherit this money. Uh, it, it's a gift. It's in her will. Um, and it's the nature of will that you, you, she can't change it. Uh, and we respect it, sort of. Okay. But for me, so she left it as a gift, but for me, I kind of really want to say to Nathan, to add a qualification, well, this is, this is for your education. Okay, you don't get this money until you go to university or do something else um, productive uh, with your life. Um, and actually, I'll arrange for you to get it in instalments so you don't spend it all at once. Okay. So essentially what's happened there is, is there was a gift and, and I've kind of added a law. And it's tempting to think, well, this is how it works. Um, this is how it works. But it doesn't, Paul says. It just doesn't work like that. He says that um, law and promise are, are mutually exclusive. You can receive something as a gift or you can receive it uh, as wages. And those two are completely different things. A promise, you just believe and you receive it. Uh, a law, you have to do it, you have to perform it. A promise is a one-sided agreement. And law is a two-sided agreement. So I could say, 
Trivial example. Come to the manse this afternoon and I'll give you £10,000. Okay. And presuming I was telling the truth and being sincere, then all you would have to do is kind of turn up at the door and say, Nick, am I the first? Okay. Okay, I'm not, by the way, just to be clear. But if I say to you, come to the manse every Monday, uh, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday for the next year uh, and, and tidy the garden, then you have to earn it. And the two are completely different things. It is, it's either a gift or it's either by law. Uh, and, and Paul says the law comes later and it doesn't set aside the promise. So this promise to Abraham and anyone who will trust God like Abraham, um, that they will be his family and uh, come to God's place for them, is always, always by promise. So what point the law? And Paul, and Paul asks this himself um, in verse 19. <clears throat> why then? Why then was the law given at all? Paul says this. It was added because of transgressions. Added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So the law was added because of transgressions, until Jesus uh, should arrive. So what the law does in the meantime, uh, between the time of Moses uh, and the time of Christ, it shows us sin, but it doesn't show us salvation. It shows us what sin is, but it doesn't show us what salvation is. It reveals the problem, but it cannot be the solution. It is not the solution. The law shows us that we're not righteous, but it has no power to make us righteous. Um, it's, it's there, actually, in verse 21, if you, if you look down. If a, if a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would have come by the law. The law shows us that we're not righteous, okay? Shows you where you've gone wrong, it convicts us that we're sinners, but it cannot impart Righteousness, it has no power to make us righteous. And, and that's like a catch-22. So Paul says, Scripture has locked us up. Scripture has kind of got us in a bind. Because it, it's Scripture in terms of, of the law of Moses. Because it shows us what we, what we should do. It shows us there are repercussions if we don't do it. But it gives us no help and no power um, to actually perform it. So it's a bit down, it's a bit like, the, the law is uh, a bit like a, a bunch of men with bayonets forcing you down a road with walls on either side. Okay, it's got you in this kind of catch-22. You, you, there's nowhere to go because the law is there and you, you can't deny it. Um, but equally on the other side, you, you can't perform it. Um, all it does is it kind of forces you down this road until blessedly you arrive at the foot of the cross. Until Jesus comes. And, and finally, there's an answer. I need to do this law. I can't do this law. You've been walking all the way along. I need to do this law. I can't do this law. You, you arrive at the foot of the cross. I need to do this law. Jesus has done this law. And at every point, he has failed. His, his blood covers. So the law is kind of like a, uh, a guard or like a guardian so Paul says that before, the, before Jesus came then, we were held in custody, we were, we were bound, we were, we were locked up, we were trapped uh, under the law, locked up 
until the faith that was to come was revealed. So the law was like a guardian <clears throat> until Christ came. It, it was, it was um, well, a guardian is like, the, the Greek word is, is kind of paedagogos, from which we get the English word pedagogue. But it's not a teacher, it's a, a guardian is like a, a tutor uh, for the children, or it was a slave. It was a slave in the household who, who would look after the children on the parents' behalf, make sure they uh, got to the places they needed to go, uh, and would potentially do, do some teaching of them. Um, so a cross between a kind of tutor and a no pair. And the nearest thing I could think of was in our culture, or in our past culture, would have been a governess. At some point, that, that idea that, that somebody who looks after the kids and uh, uh, makes sure they get their e- education. So the law was like a, a, a guardian, because until Christ came, we were like children. The law is a tutor for the immature, to keep the kids in order. And what does the governess do? She keeps the rules, and when the rules are broken, there are, there are punishments. But the question is this, what does, when a child reaches maturity, then what happens? Do the, do the rules cease to matter? So the law is like a, is like a guardian and, until Christ comes. And, and when Christ comes, it's like we've kind of come of age. But as with a child, if, if they've been brought up by the guardian, and let's say until they're, they're 18, do the rules cease to matter when the child becomes 18? What do you think? The answer is no, they don't cease to matter, but you hope that by that stage they've been internalised. So all their childhood, you've been saying to the child, hold my hand, okay, as we go across the road, okay, um, look right, look left, before you cross, um, you, you've been telling them how to, uh, how to respect people, always respect your parents and, and there are punishments, but you hope by the time they're adults that they've internalised these rules about how to respect people, how to cross the road, and all those other things. So when Christ comes, the law which was uh, a guardian, we, we become children of God. Uh, and we, when we become children of God, we, we kind of become, ironically, we become adults. We receive God's Holy Spirit, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit to lay God's laws upon our hearts so that the law becomes internalized like a child uh, moving into adulthood. And it's his job to make us make the law our own and to change our hearts and to make them adult hearts. And the law is just a temporary guardian until Christ comes and we receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so far so good. What's the problem? Well, the problem is this. And the the Galatians have this problem, uh, I think, you know, most of us have this problem sooner or later, is that we begin the Christian life with great delight that salvation is by grace, through faith and not by law. Comes a point, I trust, when you realise you needed to do it, there were repercussions if you didn't do it, but that you couldn't do it. Trust you came to that point. Um, If you haven't come to that point, you need to. uh, Ask God to kind of show that to you this morning. Comes a point, we know it failed, Delighted to find a solution which isn't, it doesn't involve our performance. But I think as we go on, sometimes, maybe quite often, we wish we could go back to the law. Give me back the, the guardian. Give me back 
this locked upness. Now, you might think that's ironic, unreasonable, but I think, I think there is little voice in each of us which, which wants to go back to the law. And that's the problem the Galatians have got. I, I think the, the fact that they've got false teachers coming in who, who want to kind of uh, say, you've, you've got to keep the Jewish law to be Christians. You've got to effectively become Jews first. I think it appeals to, to something in, in, instinctively within them. Why would, you be, why would you want to go back to law? It's clearer. In some ways, it's, it's clearer. The law spells things out for you. Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not steal. Nice, clear, concise. Under grace, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, suddenly you've got to think things through. Who, who is my neighbour? What could, what could I be doing for them that would bless them? Suddenly the whole world opens up, this world of obedience to Christ, this, this world of, uh, uh, of doing what God wants, suddenly kind of expands, kind of exponentially. So law is clearer and it's easier. And it's easier because it's, it's bounded. Apparently the Jews found um, 613, if I remember rightly, commands. In the Old Testament, well, 613 commands is, is a lot, it's a lot neater and simpler than love your neighbour as yourself. That could just go on indefinitely. Think about the Good Samaritan, um, the, the, the parable. The, the Samaritan goes down a road and he finds a guy who, who's in need. Suddenly, love your neighbour as yourself kind of, seems, kind of opens up and, and you could find a neighbour anywhere. You can find a neighbour as you walk home from, uh, from church. Um, he, he takes him, doesn't he, and he puts him at the inn and he says to the guy, um, if you need to spend any more money on him, I'll, I'll pay you back. Suddenly, loving your neighbour as yourself, you think, well, this could get me involved in something really long term. And it could, cost, it could cost me quite a lot of money. Poor old good Samaritan, he doesn't know what the hotel... He's, he's relying quite a lot, don't you think, on the um, trustworthiness of that hotel keeper. But he could just go on, couldn't it? So law is neat and bounded. Um, and because it's bounded, it, it allows for self-justification. Because you're kind of right, if it's law, then your rightness is in your own hands. We love that sense that we would, I think that we, we, can, we are able to put things right. That putting our relationship with God right is in our own hands. We like that. Rather than coming back to Mercy coming back to the cross. And I think we want to go away feeling like we've done enough. Do you not want to go away this morning feeling like, I've done my stuff? So easy, isn't it? So you come this morning and go away and think, I've loved my neighbour as myself because I've been to church. Well, I I wonder whether you want to do a little experiment, which is maybe just look to the opposite corner of the church and think, when did I last speak to them? Who are they? Can I remember their name? If I can't remember, how could I, how could I pray? How could I pray for them this week? So have a little look around and just go on. And say, Who are these people? Am I really starting? Am I loving my neighbour with as myself? Am I starting with the family of God as a, uh, as I should do, or have I forgotten what they're called? 
maybe I need to kind of metaphorically cross the diagonal um, and go and find out who those people are. And then at least this week I could, I could say a prayer. At least I could go away this week and I could say, I, I know who they are. Love your neighbour as yourself suddenly kind of explodes with, with kind of possibilities. Uh, and I think, gents, um, it allows them for competition. Don't, don't we love a little bit of comparative stuff? You can tell that Paul, kind of, you know, before he was, before he was a Christian, kind of says, I did this, I did this, did this, I did all the, I did all the law. It allows a bit of competition. It allows you to say, I'm doing better than them. We like a bit of that. And I think, I'll find this quite hard to explain, I think it allows us to have transcendence on demand. Um, Let me try and explain that. What I mean by transcendence is a kind of God moment. I think we like those sense of moments when we're sort of taken out of ourselves. Um, Those moments where you're moved and suddenly just anything which lifts us kind of out of of the mundane um, might be a God moment. It might be something particularly moving in a little bit of reality TV. You know, but we like those moments where we're just kind of lifted um, out of the mundane, Um, especially if if they're a genuine God moment. But one of the things law does is it allows us to kind of set up little rituals. Anything you say often enough in a certain syrupy tone of voice kind of starts to feel holy after a while. It's one of the reasons kind of resist using um, set forms of words or patterns. Because over time, anything that you do repeatedly in kind of set forms of words, the words themselves suddenly become essential words as if they're kind of magical words. And over time, then, it's those kind of words and rituals in, in themselves which become important, and we think we've had a God moment when we haven't. And you see that, I, I find it hard to kind of uh, give you a really good example, but you see it in the Old Testament law, that they, the, the sacrificial system, it became this thing that they just did. And they thought they'd had a God moment, but their hearts were somewhere com- completely else. So understand, the law is a temporary guardian. The law is kind of like a, a guard frog-marching you to the, uh, to the cross. At least I hope it brought you to the, uh, to the, the foot of the, the cross. Problem is, we quite like the law. Simpler, it's easier, allows us to justify ourselves, allows us to think we've done the God thing. when our hearts are maybe unchanged. So, you may be thinking, what, Nick, what on earth do you want me to do about it? And here's another kind of catch-22, because if I bundle you out a whole load of things to do this morning, then I've kind of created a new law. And the last thing I want you to do is to go away and and do that uh, out of guilt. But there's no way around this. Uh, What I want you to do is to go away and delight in God. That's the first thing. We'll come back to some more practical things in the book, but Paul hasn't got to them yet, so I'm not getting to them yet. I want you to go away and delight in the Lord. Okay. So if you want me to be practical about that, then I want you to go and book some time. 
And I would say you do it today because if you're like me, anything I say on Sunday morning, I've forgotten by Sunday afternoon. You will have realised this over time. Anything I promise you on Sunday morning is forgotten by the time I get home. So do check that I've written it down. Maybe you want to write it down. There's, there's things to write down on this morning. I'm going to give God a little bit of time this week to say, God, I'm so grateful, so thankful that this is all by grace. So book some time. Write a little note. I don't trust you any more than me that you're going to remember this when you get out of the building. And then I think you have a choice. Which is either you walk in grace or you walk in law. You either walk in grace or you walk in law. And it's not about the actual behaviour that you do. It is about what is in the heart that underlies that behaviour. So it's not about whether you go out from here and into coffee and introduce yourself um, to that person who you've never seen before. It's whether you do it out of grace, inspired by grace, or whether you do it out of some kind of vague sense of guilt that you haven't done enough. And let me just picture it like this. So that the first, to walk in grace, is, is like to walk along uh, a, a mountain path. Okay, in the full sunshine, kind of walking above the clouds, uh, you, you feel the warmth of the sun. But it's maybe like a path on a kind of, on, on a ridge edge. You have to pay attention, just a little bit. You have to pay a bit of attention that you stay on this path. Um, under the sun in the presence of God um, delighting in God because otherwise you kind of slip off the path and um, you head back under the clouds to walk by law is to to slip away from that and it's like walking through mud in, in the valley bottom surrounded by mist it's a slog it's a slog. To, to walk out of this vague sense of guilt, well, I need to go to church. I ought to be reading my Bible. Okay, Ugh, Nick said I ought to go and find something I didn't know. Okay. Ugh. But in some senses, it's easier. Because in the valley bottom, the side goes up, so you never kind of fall off the path. You, you just keep your head down, uh, and you keep slogging away. So I'm not going to give you a list of commands, at least not yet. Not for now. For now, I just want you to get your head up and look at the sun. I want you to get your head up and and look at the sun. Look at Christ. Look at the Lord. Remember what he's done for you. Just lift your head. Look God in the eye and respond with delight and thankfulness and openness to whatever his spirit might say to you.